You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the Audio Road. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority. The list goes on and on. If you've got a question about anything at all, Pick up the phone and give me a call. Today is the power hour, so we'll be taking all of your engine-related questions, engines, performance, fuel mileage, troubleshooting, upgrading, modifications, you name it. And joining me from Pittsburgh Power today is Bruce Mallinson. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin, it's always a pleasure. Great to have you here, and this is the uh, the first chance we've had to talk since the CMC. Are you recovered? Oh, wow. Was I wore out after the CMC. Starting at 5.30 is when we would get up so that we could make breakfast at 6.30 or 7. And then we were in the building until 5 or 6 o'clock at night, and then we went out into the parking lot for another two and a half or three hours answering questions and helping people. And then to dinner, and then trying to go to bed on a full stomach, and to get up six hours later, it was brutal. I uh, I actually it, it, felt my age. I felt my age, Kevin. It, it, it was a tough week, and you know, you and I have joked for years that we go to you know three day truck shows and we stand ten feet apart and never get a chance to talk. But this was an entire week of twelve or fourteen hour days, and we hardly got a chance to talk the whole week. That's right. But uh, fortunately, we had uh, John and Leroy and Ethan and Debbie. And being we had the two young engineers, they were able to hang in there on their 16-hour days. And uh, everything worked well. And Oh, and Sean assembling the engine. I think people enjoyed watching the care that goes into an engine, especially when it comes to liner protrusion, which I talk about a lot. You know, it was, I didn't have a lot of time, but every time I went over there watching the build, it was just the care, and it was so meticulous and so clean, and he was explaining exactly why, you know, you could build it to, you know, factory specs, but how you go even further and, and get things closer tolerances and tighter, and it was such an amazing build. It was funny because... Um, I have a lot of haters, you know, and, and this year's event was so big, they came out of the woodwork. And, and one of the comments I saw, I just had to laugh. Somebody said they would never buy an engine that was built in a hotel lobby. And my first thought was, well, it wasn't a hotel lobby. It was a convention center. But besides that, this is the engine I would want to build. The, the build was so clean you know, it was being done in a very, very nice place, but it was so clean and so meticulous. Um, I, I just thought that was such an ignorant comment. Well, for years I worked on the road, 
and I would do cut upper counter bores, install cam bearings, cam timing, install liners and pistons. And the majority of the garages that I walked into, first of all, the lights were dim. The workbenches were covered in filth. They would take their arms and just push the trash out of the way, the grease on the floor. And I would look at them. I said, you want me to put these beautiful, been all this time rebuilding on this filthy bench? And some garages didn't have workbenches. They'd put a piece of 4 by 8 sheet of plywood across drive tires, and that was your workbench. <laughs> so yeah. that person and on the other who hand, made that comment needs to get out of their shell and go visit some of these filthy shops that are in this country. And by the way, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars worth of labor to keep a facility fairly clean. We we keep track of it, and it shocks. It's shocking to me of how many thousands of dollars it takes. You know, there's a great analogy because there are two places I really love. One is a garage, and I want it to be clean, and it's so rare, like you said. You look at, at most garages, and they're a mess. And then the other place I love are kitchens. And if you look at most restaurant kitchens, they're filthy. Um, and the reason is what you just mentioned. It takes just an incredible amount of money and manpower to keep both of those places clean. But, I, you know, when you watch some of the Top Chef shows and, and challenges and that, um, Gordon Ramsay, who runs some of the best restaurants in the world, was a fanatic. Like after every shift, hours would be spent cleaning the kitchen. And it does make a difference. Watching you guys build that engine, it was so clean, it almost looked like an operating room. That's correct. And that's how we try to keep the shop. And we really try to keep our engine assembly room like that. But it is a very difficult process. Uh, Think of the amount of dirt that a truck brings in, especially in the wintertime. Think of the truck that comes in that's been leaking oil and the engine's covered with filth. That all ends up on your floor. Uh, I try to ask people, stop by the Blue Beacon or someplace and get your truck pressure washed, especially the engine underneath, around the front suspension, but the majority of the people do not. And we really appreciate a nice, clean truck when it comes in. Yeah, and it, it's tough to keep them clean on the road, and, and all that stuff gets dragged into a garage. But most of what you see in the garages is just because they don't take the time. They won't spend the money to pay people to, to keep it clean. And, you know, again, watching this was just amazing because everything was spotless. And when the engine was done, everything just looked like new. When the person that made that comment, what they don't know is there was about two months' time spent preparing everything, and that engine was already basically pre-assembled and taken back apart, so we knew what all the specs were. So there was a tremendous amount of time. You know, the price that we put on it showed 60 hours. We probably had about 220 hours in that engine. So whoever buys it is going to get a screaming deal because it was really a loser for us to do that, but we wanted to educate the people so they can see what goes through and what it takes and just what it takes to check liner protrusion. And we know other shops aren't doing it, and they're not doing it the proper way, and they don't buy the proper equipment to do it. 
you know, I wanted to get into rebuilding Volvo engines, and I called the local Volvo dealer, and we're pretty good friends. And I said, how many specialty tools will I need to build the Volvo engine? And he said, pallets full. I said, is it that bad? Wow. He said, yes. That's and crazy. so that's why we've stayed away from that, from the Volvo. So one guy said, how hey, many specialty I, tools does it take? And it takes thousands of dollars worth of specialty tools per engine. Yeah, which is crazy. Hey, I, I just see that we got uh, John and Ethan on, so let me bring those guys in. Hey, guys, we're uh, we were just kind of wrapping up some uh, final thoughts from the CMC. How did you guys manage that week? I didn't get to talk to you too much. I really enjoyed it. It was, it was nice to meet the community and some of the people that we've been talking to and, and helping here on the radio and uh, put faces with some of them. And it was really, really, really enjoyable. It was, it was neat to be part of it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun there. Good, good. I know it was a, a crazy week. I'm uh, trying to recover, but studying for finals isn't making it very easy. So uh, two more weeks and then I'll be able to relax. Terrific. What are you What are you studying for? Uh, nutritional therapy practitioner. So I've been in the program um, a little over a year, and I've got finals coming up in about ten days. So oh, terrific. I'm sweating it a little. Yeah, getting ready for the CMC. I wasn't keeping up very well on homework, so I'm also trying to catch up on about a semester of homework while I cram for finals. <laughs> And, you know, you did not, you were supposed to bring that motor home to the shop so we could get more power for you. Well, you got to talk to Lisa because she's parked only about an hour away from you. Oh, really? She has the motor home? Yeah, she's got it in Streetsboro. Oh, okay. Well, then let's get it in so we can give it more power. Well, you gotta you got to convince her to, well, somebody's <laughs> got to move it now because I'm not there. I flew back to Portland. So you flew back. Little, All right. We we'll go, we'll go there, out and we? get it. Kevin, we'll did, go get it for you. There you go. Did the, uh, did okay. the little little tweak we gave it there give it some help or no? How did it run after we... It, it, it did. Let me, uh, let me get to this break, yeah. and I'll come back and tell you what I... Uh, what I noticed with just a little bit of change that was made while we were in Council Bluffs. Stick around. We'll be right back. We're going to come back and get to your calls and questions right after this. I'm Kevin Rothenberg. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce, 
and uh, John and Ethan with me today. So, guys, you know, leaving from Council Bluffs and going to Ohio, I didn't have any, you know, real pulls. But the one thing I noticed immediately was it's downshifting a lot less. That six-speed Allison, if it even sees something that looks like an incline downshifts over and over, and it was doing a lot less of that. And the fuel economy, this is a little early to tell, um, Every trip I've taken with it so far, I've been in the 4.7 range pulling that trailer, and I was at about 5.3 or so um, oh, wow. on this last leg. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that was all we could do there on the spot. You'd have to get over here for, for some more. Yeah, we just, uh, like I say, Bruce, you're just going to have to work on Lisa and figure out how to do that before I get back. Okay. When are you flying back? Uh, let me look at the calendar real quick. I think it's going to be somewhere around the 12th of June. Does that sound right? Um, no, because I'll still – the 14th. I'll probably be back on the 14th or 15th. 14th or 15th. All right, I'm going to put that on my calendar. Yeah, and then – we might have a week or so there that maybe I could run it over for a day or two, and then we're, uh, we've got stuff planned all the way back to Portland. Time off. 14th and 15th, okay. So let's, uh, let's get to some phone calls. Let's start off in Florida. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Oh, hello, Kevin, Bruce, Ethan, and John. How are you all doing today? Good. How are you? Good. Um, all right. Um, I don't have a motor question today. I have a clutch question. Um, with my clutch, I feel like I'm fighting. I'm fighting trying to take my clutch out of gear when I'm coming to a stop. I don't know if that can be the linkage or that stop brake. It, it could be a number of things. It, it could be the clutch brake. It also could be that the pilot bearing in the back of the crank is uh, dragging a little bit and not allowing the uh, input shaft to to stop rotating or slow down, or it could be one of the clutch discs, discs hanging up on the spline and creating a little bit of friction there and rotating the input shaft. Uh, most likely, it's just an adjustment and the clutch brake is not engaging fully or slowing that input shaft down enough to allow you to pop out of gear. No, okay. well, you, I, I changed. I changed that uh, that stop brake about about two months ago. Okay. And I adjusted it. Yeah, adjusted it back down, and everything was fine up until like yesterday, and then it started acting up on me. And even even though like if I pop it in reverse, before I can even start to even get off the clutch, it's acting like it want to pull. You know, it just yeah. right before I yep. uh, let off the clutch, it's trying to it's trying to trying to move before I'm even uh, you know all the way off the clutch. Now, how, how much many free play miles? have you got? Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh good. Has your free play adjusted properly? Are you sure? I, I do have a lot of free play. play. Yeah, so, yeah, it's about, about three inches of free uh, play. Get that, yeah, get that adjusted out of it first, and, and then you know, get that down to about one to two inches. Two inches max, one inch minimum. So I might have, adjusted, I might have it uh, adjusted too tight. Too loose. Okay. Yeah, you have too much free play. How, how many right. miles are on your clutch? 
Uh, 1.3 million. I bought the truck brand new, and I put every mile on it. So you've never put a clutch in it, huh? Never put a clutch in it. Well, you know, a lot of filth builds up in the flywheel housing and on the shaft. And I have a feeling you're probably due for a clutch and cleaning everything out of there because you're going to be surprised at how much dirt collects in there. And if you've got $1.3 million on a clutch, you're a heck of a driver. Oh, yeah. How will I how will I know if it's time to change the clutch? Will it will it slip first? It it should slip, but you might be out of adjustment. You might be out of uh if you can't get some of that free play out of there, I think you should have an inch and a half to two inches at the max free play. Okay. Yeah, if I you have, have a try, let have us a know. Wait a second, can you repeat that? I'm going to say give it a try, that. get some of that free play out of there, and then let us know. Give us a call to shop. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, fellas. You're welcome. All right. You're welcome. Yeah, 1.3, I would say uh, it might be time for a clutch. <laughs> Although, Bruce, you know, the whole time I was in Florida, every truck I owned down there for 14 years, um, I would buy them new, run them to about 1.2, 1.3 million miles, and then trade them in. And I don't ever remember putting a clutch in. Wow, that's good. Our you know, we have maybe is between eight, eight and nine hundred thousand is what we see on average. You know, I had really good drivers. Um, our freight was fairly light, and most of my trucks ran Florida and Georgia. Although I had some that ran the West Coast and. We just, you know, most of my drivers didn't use the clutch to shift, and they were really good on, you know, using the clutch to get started and never riding mm-hmm. it. It'll last a long time. That's right. Just like everything else on the truck, if you take care of it and drive it right. <laughs> let's uh, let's go to Florida. Justin, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, Bruce, how y'all doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Hey, question. Bruce, how much hook up your shop uh, when you and uh, I guess one of your guys were at the CMC? Um, I brought it there because uh, I had a Detroit down here at Fort Pierce, Orlando, and Ocala. And I kept hearing this uh, chatter noise, pinging, pinging noise and chatter noise, right? Nobody could hear it. Some could hear it. So I decided to go to your shop. Um so I'm going to give me a clean bill of health on it. So they did a dyno test on it, smoke test, everything, everything, all compression, everything is like one inch of water. They say everything came back good. Um, I told them I was starting to blow out a little bit of black smoke when I go in between my gears. You know, higher the gears, more black smoke I would blow out. Not really too bad. So uh, their sister checked into that. They said, uh, you know, you know, if it doesn't do it, we can't figure it out. I'm like, well, that's easy. Let's hook up to the trailer, and I'll show you real fast. Well, I don't know what happened there. But uh make long story short, they went ahead and reprogrammed the ECM to 500 to the ground. I left, went to Pittsburgh, picked up a load, uh, right about 78,000 pounds, and uh, took some back roads out there, and my smoke was so bad, uh, you couldn't see a car behind me. 
So I called them back up. They're like, well, maybe it's a weak injector, this, this, that. Uh, you know, I it's really driving me batty. I, I just would love to get it figured out what it is. Um, they're thinking maybe they redid the ECM, it's a weak injector, now it's putting more fuel in it. When when can I get back up there? But yet when they did the injector test, it, it failed the first time. It passed three other times. What do you think? Okay, now, well, here's here's my thoughts. Years ago, if we did not have smoke between shifts, we something was wrong because the aneroid valves were set too tight. So now what we want to see is a haze between shifts. But what happened with electronic engines, it made people lazy because they had the computers set so tight that it wouldn't give you any fuel until you got to 8 pounds of turbo boost. And then at 8 pounds, between 8 and 10, the gray or the black turns clear. So people got used to just mashing on the throttle. So if you drive by the boost gauge and you ease into the throttle until you see 8 pounds of turbo boost, and it's easier to see 10 because there's a 10 on the gauge, and then you get after the throttle, you never have any smoke. So what I want you to try now is to look at your boost gauge. You do have a boost gauge, right? Yeah, I get kind of a scan gauge up there, and I did notice that. So I get on the fuel really light, and then once the boost fills up, then you can mash on it. Blows out a little so, bit of black smoke, well, wait, but see no that term? Wait, wait. That term mash on it? When you mash on a throttle, you're putting strain on the whole entire drivetrain. So I want to get people away from that term mash on it because our role as an owner-operator is not to see how fast we can go from 0 to 60 or 0 to 70, but how well we can maintain our cruising speed but you have to ease into the throttle like you have an egg between your foot and the throttle. But get used to that being at 8 to 10 pounds of boost and then roll a little bit more into it. Give it a little more. Let the RPM come up. Grab your next gear, but be gentle with it until you can get back, and we'll set that computer tighter for you. All right, there's the music. I've got to get to a break. We will be right back with more stuff. Stick around. Kevin Rothenberg. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and John and Ethan with me. Bruce, I was thinking about something as you were talking during that last call. You know, 
the the kind of trucks that we've been building and the engines you guys are building, the modifications we've used to get better fuel economy, we're moving almost the opposite way from the OEMs. The OEMs keep building trucks that anybody can drive. Auto shift transmissions, automated everything. And their whole point is that they're short on drivers. They need to hire people with less and less training. And the engines in the trucks we're building need better and better drivers. There needs to be more understanding and more interaction, but we're also pushing the limits on performance and fuel economy, but you just can't throw anybody in a truck like that. Well, everybody wants response, but you have to keep in mind it takes 220,000 parts of air to burn one part of fuel. So think of, let's take a shot glass, a shot diesel fuel. To burn that fuel clear, you need 220,000 shot glasses filled with air. Wow. That's a lot of air. That's a tremendous amount of air. That's a great visual. Yes. So think about it. When you have a response, when you shift, you lose your boost. Now you got to get that boost built back up to the eight to ten pounds, and so what the you remember the old aneroid valves? Well, the ECM does the same thing; it holds it back. Well, the problem is, if you're starting out and you have eighty thousand and you're going up a hill, or you're going up a hill and you have to downshift, some guys will say, "Once I have to push in the clutch, I got to drop two gears," because they have no response. So given that response, you're going to see that little burst of smoke or that haze of smoke. The trick is to just be gentle with it until you get to 8 or 10, but never mash. And, and I hear that term every day, and, and that term makes me cringe because I think <laughs> what goes through that input shaft and that drive shaft and that ring and pinion, it's not really the engine that suffers. It's what's behind it that suffers. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because I've always been a really easy driver. I don't ever mash on it, and I never use that term. But even as easy as I thought I was driving, when you did the ECM on my last Series 60 on the 99 Volvo, the first day I was watching in my mirrors, and I had a weed burner on that one, and every time I shifted, I'm like, that was a lot more smoke than I've ever gotten shifting. But I, I realized as the day went on, that even though I wasn't mashing on it, I was getting back in the throttle a little harder than I should have been. And, and it really made me work at reducing that amount of smoke between shifts. And like you said, kind of just so it was a haze. So I wasn't rolling right. a bunch of black smoke out every time I shifted. What I'd like to do is add a three-inch diameter turbo boost gauge made and put it in a cup like we used to do back in the 60s on a on a, a tachometer, you know, up on a dashboard of a 55 or 57 right. Chevy, and have this three-inch gauge up there and have it be red from zero to eight. And so you that means you cannot get after the throttle. And then if this gauge is right in front of you, it will train you on how to drive. Now, the problem with most truck manufacturers are they do not understand the value of a turbo boost gauge, so they put it down, and usually your right or your left knee is interfering with the side of the gauge. 
And I've talked with not only that, OEMs about that. Not only that, but the gauge itself is just a horrible design. I mean, you can't, like you said, you can't tell the difference between 8 and 10 on most gauges. Well, now they're putting in a boost gauge with just lines. So, But the, yeah. the one that we use, is it's, uh, it does say 5, 10, 20. And, and so that's, it's a Hewitt, and it's made out of Huntington Beach, California. So it is a USA-made gauge. And it's much easier to read, but it's got to be in sight. Now, the other problem with the J1939 electronics is the boost gauge gets one out of every four or five signals, so the gauge responds slowly. I say, you know, a mechanical boost gauge kit is only $68. Put a mechanical gauge in, even if you have your gauge, your scan gauge, and it has a factory gauge on it, put a mechanical gauge on it, and if you really want it to react fast, instead of using eighth-inch plastic tubing, use quarter-inch plastic tubing like I did on motorhomes. And I did that on motorhomes because the air pressure had to go 45 feet to get up to the gauge. Right. So then then you will see how it responds. So when a person wants more power, if they are a pedal masher, they need to say, hey, I'm rough with the throttle. So hold back my fuel. But then if you have to start out and upshift through hilly country, it's a problem. You have to have that response. Now, remember when we told you about putting the VG, the variable geometry turbo, on the 60 series? That will help eliminate that smoke. Yeah, interesting. Hey, let's get to some more calls because we've got a bunch. Let's go to Missouri. Brady, welcome to the program. Hey, how we doing, Kevin? Hey, I got a, Good. a 97 uh, Caterpillar 3406 motor. It's in a glider truck, and uh, can you explain to me what this wastegate on this turbo, what its function is? All right, I can explain that to you. In time before we had a wastegate, uh, Hugh McGinnis's book, and he was the godfather of turbocharging, he, he's passed away now, but I read his book several times 39 years ago. And it says zero exhaust leaks on a turbocharged engine. Well, wastegate is a major leak. So here's what happens. Back in the 80s, to keep one part number in stock, I don't care if it was a 15-cent gasket. It cost the OEMs $20,000 a year in paperwork. Now, this is ridiculous. Computers were supposed to make life easier. I don't know if it did. So what they did was, instead of having a turbine housing for the different rated engines, like a 350, a 400, a 450, a 500, you have to go up in the size of the turbine housing because you have to flow more exhaust through it. Well, what they did was they said, well, let's put a wastegate on it and just uh, let's adjust the wastegate. So I'm going to give you the N14 specs because they're in my head. Okay. A 460 or a 400 needs 24 pounds of boost. A 460 needs 28 pounds. A 500 needs 30, and a five and a quarter needs 32 so now they put the same turbine housing on, but they adjust the wastegate so it opens at the various settings. Well, that's fine if your foot's flat on the floor 
but 99% of the time when you're crossing the level states, your foot's not on the floor. We have the small turbine housing. We're trying to cram all the exhaust through there, and it creates tremendous back pressure. It's harder for the piston to push the exhaust out of the engine, and it robs you of fuel mileage. But it made it, so they only have to have one turbo in stock instead of having five different ones. That's why they went to the wastegate. It's almost like buying a pair of socks when you see that saying says, one size fits all. Well, that's what the engineers at the OEM did. We came along and we got rid of the wastegates. Now, what our engineers have done with the variable geometry turbos, they've been able to open those up and give you boost when you need it and take it away when you don't. And that's why we're on the forefront of being able to take 3406Es and C15s, non-wastegated, non-A-cert engines, and we're going to be able to retrofit, uh, especially on the Detroit because the ECM set up for it, being able to use the VG turbo so that we decrease the back pressure when you're on the level and then give you the boost when you're pulling on the hill. But that's the short of the wastegate, and that's the problem with wastegates. Well, my, my mechanic, when I talked to him on it, there's the little adjustment rod on the bottom. He, uh, I adjusted that in three full turns. And I noticed by doing that, that this truck before would always be about 24 pounds of boost or so. I did that, and that got it up to like 26 pounds of boost, and it seemed to build the boost a whole lot quicker. And well. The people at Caterpillar said... Hey, hold that thought. We've got to get to a break. The music's playing. We're going to come back. We've got one more segment. We're going to get to as many of your calls and questions as we can. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rothbard. All right, so a quick heads up, we're heading into the fourth segment of the first hour. I'm going to get to as many of the Power Hour questions as we can, and we're going to come back and do another hour. It looks like if you want to get through on the second hour, you might have a shot if you press 1 on your phone right now. Um, if you wait any longer, probably not. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Joining me from Pittsburgh Power, I've got Bruce and John and Ethan. And it's not that John and Ethan are lazy today. It's that uh, the telephone gods seem to be angry and they keep dropping their call. Hey, welcome back, guys. Thanks. Yeah, it's, I think it's the Internet gods today, actually, for some reason. <laughs> Something, yeah. Right. Hey, Somebody's hey, Kevin, angry with this. Yeah. Let me finish up on this wastegate. 
Okay. Sure. The reason he's seeing his boost build faster is because he's got a wastegate issue. And wastegates don't all of a sudden open. They kind of open gradually. Now, if he has a cat, whether it's a 5EK, 1LW, 6TS, he should have 32 pounds of boost. But Caterpillar has the wastegate opening at 28 pounds. And at 28 pounds, they burn manifolds and they burn turbine housings. So if you adjust the wastegate or plug it, just plug the line and take the truck for a good hard ride up the hill, and if it goes to 32 or 33 pounds, you drop 25 degrees for every pound of boost. So that four pound of boost is going to lower your exhaust gas temperature by 100 degrees, and it builds the boost quicker. Now, if you see it's going to 38 and 40, that's too much boost for a 550 horse. All right? Got it. Okay. Good information. Let's, uh, let's get to some calls here before we've got to wrap this up. We're off to Texas. Dan, welcome to the program. Dan, are you with me? Dan, going once. All right, we're going to move on. We're off to Canada this time. Mike, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good. What's on your mind today? Um, I got a 98 Peterbilt 379L that I put a 02500 ISX in it, CPL 2629. And ever since I put it in, I've had a misfire that we can't seem to find. And I'm also burning oil, too. I've just about got 5,000 miles on it, and I'm just about through my second gallon of oil. But my fuel economy is doing good. I'm still getting four and a half. I'm pulling heavy and rolling rolling hills with high wind and 140,000 loaded, 65,000 pounds empty. And, yeah, I'm just... I had a... On my scan gauge, or code ID 230-FM13, and I was just kind of curious if that would have something to do with it. I don't know what that is because it doesn't come up as a regular Cummins code. Ethan, you have any ideas, guys? So we'll put Ethan on this one. Um, what was that code again that the scan gauge came I, up with? ID 230 FM 13. I'll have to go look that one up, and I don't have it in, in front of me there. Um, give the shop a call and ask for me there, and I'll be able to figure that one out. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to look that and one up on one of the old school charts. I know it's there somewhere. Alrighty. Sounds good. And then, now, do you think that oil consumption, like it's it was a reman engine. It's only got 250,000 miles on it, so I figured it'd be a great candidate to throw in there. But do you think that oil consumption is a little high? Oh, definitely. Maybe, it, yeah. Yeah, I would run a uh, a manometer test on there to measure the blow-by. Okay. Well, it doesn't and look, just looking at the blow-by tube, it doesn't look like it's excessive or anything like that. Yeah, it's got to be going somewhere, and that would be one of my starting points. Um, maybe one cylinder's having an issue. Okay. Yeah, because I had it in at, at Peterbilt and Red Deer, and 
they did a cylinder test on it and it I had three and four were at eighty nine and the other ones were at a hundred to hundred and two on the Cummins deal, so they said, Well it's not a bad injector and sent me on my way. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would want to know the blow by on that. Yeah. Alrighty, so call Ethan, right? Yes, give give Ethan a call there and I'll, yeah, I'll give take us a call here. Yep. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. All right, no that, problem. That'll work. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Alabama. Ricky, welcome to the program. Hey guys, uh I got a DD15 and an 09 Cascadia, and I'm having an intermittent electrical problem. The ABS light will come on on the dash, and the triangle for the tire slippage will come on. And if I have the headlights on, when that tire slippage light, it'll flicker, it turns off all of the the uh, running lights on the tractor and trailer. It doesn't just turn them off. It flickers them on and off all the time. And then the the uh, the turn signals will actually start flashing inter, uh, alternately. And when the headlights are on, the dash lights start going out and everything else. I was at the uh, Detroit Diesel up in, in Lincoln, and they replaced the modular switch field, which is right behind the uh, turn signals, the flash emergency flashers. And uh, 45 miles down the road, it started doing it again. Hmm. Well, that's, that's yours, Ethan. Yeah, on that yeah. one, we had a, a truck come in, a DD-15, with a similar yeah, issue. And it, it turned out to be what they call the SAM module. Right. Um, now, it's located on the passenger side under the fuse panel. And it is practically the fuse panel for that truck. Um, and you, it's pretty much, at that point, not repairable. Um, they, they were notorious for getting water in the early designs of them. Yeah, this is an 09, so... Yeah, the the earlier the ones are, they they the new one is looks completely different. If you take a look at it, there's no actual. It's all integrated in. There's no fuses. It's all just integrated breakers. Uh, I would be suspicious. Water got onto that module. Okay, the same module. Yeah, it's a signal acquisition and monitoring, and it controls everything. Yeah, on your truck, everything. Everything. Yeah. Every light, yeah. every turn <laughs> signal. It, it, if it turns on in your truck, it goes through that module. Okay. Right. Didn't didn't you amazing. say didn't you didn't you say that was the one by the steering column and Ethan? You said the one over behind the fuse box on the passenger side. So we're talking about two different ones here. Well, well, I think that the shop that he went to was treating a symptom and not the cause. So there, there were uh, everything goes through that module, and it, what it'll do is it gets confused once it gets some moisture on that board. It it, it does all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Yeah, and the ABS is also goes through that module. Okay, it doesn't affect my scan gauge. It works perfectly fine, and it doesn't and affect it, the, the the engine the way it runs. It won't. Yeah, it's okay. just going to affect like the lighting, and if it gets bad enough, it could shut the truck off. But that's right. it, it's a slim possibility. Yeah, the main the main power does go through it, but it has to have a pretty big failure for it to shut the truck off. So. Your scan gauge reads the ECM, which is powered separately of the SAM. The SAM controls pretty much every function on the truck, including ABS, other than the engine. Yeah, I had a couple times last night, the headlights would actually go off and then come back on. 
Yeah, we had a trucker in the shop that would just turn the headlights on while I was sitting here without anyone in it or anyone touching it. You'd look at it and all yeah, of a sudden the headlights would be on. Yeah, when I shut it off, the headlights stayed on. Yep. So, okay, well, that gives me an idea where to look anyway. Yeah, I would look for water along that, that side. It, it's a it's a real pain to get out of there. Um takes a couple hours because you got to disassemble part of the dash. Okay. And that is on the passenger That's, side, uh, correct? It's Yes, it's, it's on the passenger side, yes. Let's try to squeeze in one more quick one before we've got to wrap this up. We're off to Wisconsin West. Welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, the uh, You were talking about your coach and uh, they're shifting up and down. I kind of bell went off. Uh, I looked and I read uh, Diesel Power Magazine there. You know, there's some high-performance pickup trucks. And... Uh, I seen a little ad in there for a thing called a converter lockup for that Allison transmission, where you could flip the switch and override the uh, transmission's co- shifting computer. Well, that uh, transmission automatically locks up second through sixth gear. It's in lockup. Yeah, the the problem isn't the transmission. I mean, it needs to downshift. That's the problem. It's got such a, a, a high gear ratio in that final gear that it just dies. The, the added power helped, but I wouldn't have wanted to try to keep it in six because it would have just it, it, it just falls flat in six. But it's downshifting a lot less now that we've got the power addressed a little bit. I think that's a 40% overdrive. I think your final drive is 0.6. Yeah, I I think you're right, Bruce. I think it's like 0.62 or it's horrible, though. So um, the little bit you guys did has helped. We're hoping to get it over to you uh, so you can work some more magic on it. But I'm all out of time. Thanks, you guys. Bruce, John, Ethan from Pittsburgh Power. This has been the Power Hour. We'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Kevin Rutherford. All right, we're going to start a second hour. I'll keep you updated on uh, whether we have any room for questions as we go. Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs. Back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority, If you've got a question about anything at all, pick up the phone, 
give me a call and we'll get to it. Um, you know, sometimes on these uh, short weeknight shows, I just like to skip an open and go right to the calls. And we've got a bunch, so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to get started and see what you want to talk about. We're going to start off in Virginia. Jim, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Um, real easy question for you. I, I want to purchase about a $35,000 uh, older truck this year, and I'm not going to I don't plan on putting it into service until next year. When can I write off, what year can I write off the purchase price uh, as far as my taxes? So um, there's a, a little bit of a weird rule here. So you can, you can buy it this year and wait till next year to officially put it in service for taxes. You don't want to put it in service this year when you have no revenue. So we can wait the problem is it changes one thing that may or may not be important. There, there's a rule in depreciation called Section 179. That allows us to write off any amount we want in the first year up to the total amount. Like if, if you put it in service next year and you had a killer year and lots of revenue, we could write off all 35000 at one time if we want or any amount up to that and then depreciate the rest. It gives us a lot of flexibility. What changes is if you buy a piece of equipment in one year, but put it in service in the next year, or any year after that, you're not allowed to use Section 179. You just have to depreciate it, which may or may not be a big deal. Well, I don't know if this makes any difference, but I I, I currently, you know, I'm an owner-operator now. I have a truck. I'm I'm running what i'm basically trying to do is buy a 99 or older so i can you know avoid having to go on e-logs um so i mean i have revenue this year does that make any difference okay. or it, it does yeah absolutely okay. because it, 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 if you have revenue i would take the i would put it into service this year use as much depreciation as you need to get your tax to zero Okay, yeah. When you say when you say put it into service, is that, does that mean I have to drive it? I mean, I I guess no. I'm trying to no. Oh, okay. What does put it now, into it, service you know, mean? In, yeah, in in twenty some years of doing tax returns, I've never seen any of these things questioned anyway. Okay. Um, okay. In in service could mean, and you're getting it ready to put on okay. the road. It doesn't have to go generate any revenue. Normally, we use it. We use this to hold off putting something into depreciation, because if there isn't any revenue, if somebody's just getting started, we don't want to take the depreciation against no revenue. But you have revenue, so we might yeah. as well use as much depreciation as we want. Okay, so in a nutshell, I, I I would like to put it this year. I could buy it thirty five thousand and write the entire thirty five put the entire thirty five thousand on twenty sixteen. Correct. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Okay, that's all I wanted to know, my friend. Thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Now let me throw one more thing in there. That is long. That will work as long as the Democrats don't get their way because they keep trying to reduce that Section 179 allowance, which is like at a half a million now. They keep wanting to reduce it to 10 or 15 or 25,000 or some stupid number. Um, they didn't succeed last year. Hopefully that will hold, but 
Um, either way, you would be able to write off up to whatever you spend or whatever the Section 179 limit is. And right now, it's a half a million. Let's go to Colorado. Daniel, welcome to the program. Um, thank you, Kevin. i got real, three real quick questions. Um, the okay. first one is, my Freightliner is a 93 model Freightliner. Will a, can you, will a scan gauge work with that early model of a truck, or do you have to have a computer on board? What engine? Uh, Detroit Series 60. Uh, 93, it must be a D-Deck 2. And I'm thinking that the scan gauge did not work with the D-Deck 2. I think you had to get to the D-Deck 3. I don't know which one of those I have. I just know it's the Detroit Series 60. Um, so I think it's a D-Deck 2 if it's a 93, if it hasn't been upgraded. Now, some D-Deck 2s, it's actually an easy engine to upgrade the electronics to a D-Deck 3. In fact, if we would have had this question when I still had Ethan on, he would have known this for sure. But if I remember right, all they do on a D-Deck 2 is put a D-Deck 3 ECM on it, and then it will work with the scan gauge. Plus, it's just better electronics anyway. And I could talk to Pittsburgh Power about that, I'm sure. Yep, and they can fix you up with both. They can do the ECM and they sell the scan gauge. Okay. Um, the main thing I wanted to ask you about, um, we got the big safety check coming up next week, and I got an email from uh, Truck Solutions talking about that the main thing, of course, they always look at brakes, but one of the main things that they were going to look at was tire safety, tire depth, tire groove, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And it even it even went as far to state that um, that a regroove tire could possibly get you a three point violation. And everything I'm looking at in the safety book, the only said place that says you can't use a regroove tire is on the front. I mean, I see nothing about it. it says you, as long as your depth is correct, have they put any kind of stipulations on regroove tires? I mean, the tires even say on the side of them regroovable. And I had to put some some new grooves in them, and they look good. But are, am I going to get a violation because I've got a regrooved tire on my truck, or a couple of them? Now, I have you know. never heard of a violation for a regrooved tire, and I would only put them on either a drive axle or a, or a trailer tire. I wouldn't put them on right. steer. But I, I no, know people I, who have been regrooving tires for years. And okay. I'm not even sure what, how they would test for this. I mean, there are certainly limits we need to follow when we regroove a tire, but anybody who knows what sure. they're doing, they, they know what those limits are. And I don't know how, my God, without taking the tire off the rim, I don't know how you would know that it's been regrooved. Well, if you look at it close enough, you can, you can tell. But I, see, this, I, this is an email I got from Trucker Solutions. And they were talking about the big safety check, and it even says, yeah, um, you know about the it says tire violations, you know, of course a belt a belt broken or stuff like that carries a weight of eight, and then it said regroove tires, tire load weight rating, and underinflated tires carry a three point violation. I had never heard of that, and my tires look I, good; they're regrooved. I guess that need to ask a DOT officer, don't I? Yeah, I you know maybe we'll. Uh... Maybe I'll get a hold of um, uh, Dale, who does all of our compliance stuff, because I've never heard of this either. I hadn't either, and I didn't want to go change my tires out because I, I still got several miles left in them if I did not need to. 
Um, the last yeah, quick third me, question. Uh, the last, yep, go ahead. Last third quick question I have for you. Um, we're in the process of incorporating. My wife is filling out the paperwork. Um, we're tr- one thing it says on there is, what date do you plan on paying your first wages? Now, really, we don't want to incorporate, I think, and switch out the registration. My registration changes in October. And I don't want to have to – I thought it would be just easier to change everything over when I, when I, when I have to get, get the new registration for the truck um, in October or before October. So how should she fill that out that, they're going, that the first date that the wages are going to be paid through the corporation? Does it matter? I, I would I, – I, I don't think it does matter. I, I would okay. put whatever date makes sense for the business, and I wouldn't worry about registration. You know – this can get really, really confusing, but I can tell you over 30 years of owning trucks, I had uh-huh. multiple companies, multiple corporations. I moved trucks back and forth between, you know, running under my own name and my own EIN number, running under the core. I mean, nothing ever matched. And and right. I did tax returns for a lot of people, and, and nobody ever, it was never questioned whether or not okay. the truck we were depreciating was in the right name. Like I had tax right. returns where I was depreciating trucks on a personal Schedule C, but they had a corporate name on the title or vice versa. I wouldn't worry too much about the registration on this. I would set up the corporation and start doing payroll when it makes sense to you. And then if you want to change the trucks over when it's time, but I don't think it's going to matter. We'll be right back. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rothbard. All right, a quick heads up. Um, we wrapped up the power hour. We lost a bunch of calls. Um, I have three segments left to do on um, on this hour, and that normally means in three segments I can usually get to about six calls. Um, right now I've only got two, so I'll get to those calls. If we're done, we're done. Uh, but if you want an opportunity to get through, I would press one on your phone right now and we should be able to get to you. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. We're here taking your calls and answering your questions. I'm off to Georgia this time. Richard, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. I got three questions for you. They're pretty quick. Um, okay. Uh, key uh, tire pressure monitoring systems. Want to get your advice on which ones to get. Uh, video recording for my 
for my truck surveillance rear in the front. Wanting to get your uh, get your advice on that and how much balance speed should I put in a wide base tire? Got it. All right. So let's start at the top. Tire pressure monitoring systems. This was the most extensively tested product we've ever done. Uh, before we ever, you know, really talk about or, or recommend a product, I've always done a lot of testing. But this, this product category took me four years. We went through four totally different systems, and I tested each one for a year before I settled on one, and we've been very happy with it. It's TST, Truck System Technologies. And they, a couple different models, they have internal sensors, external sensors. Um, both of them work great. I like the internals, um, but you obviously have a little higher cost break down all the tires and put them on but hands down that's the system we're working with and we're recommending um, you said that's TST yes yeah okay I'll go yep. ahead and the what was the second question uh, video surveillance like uh, uh, not necessarily a dash cam but the, the one that's got the oh, DVR yeah. recording where you can record all four sides of the vehicle? Yep, zero experience with this. So this one, you're okay. on your own. Like I said, before we ever recommend a product, we do a lot of testing on stuff, and this just is one of those products that I don't see a huge demand for, so we've never really tested any. Um, the uh, amount of counteract in a wide single... Um, I believe, and I'm going to try to check on this while I'm talking, um, is 12 ounces, if I remember right. Um, uh, I don't know why I can't remember this. We were just talking about this the other day, and I'm thinking I'm getting it confused in my head with something else. Let me... Um, I'm going to go to another call. I'm going to double-check on that, and then I'll announce it, and you'll be able to hear me um, when I've got you on hold. So I'm going to move on to another. Oh, okay. So Lisa just responded to me. She knows this stuff better than I do. Uh, 14 to 16 ounces in a wide single. 16, I would probably go with 16, um, and that sounds right. Because I think we used to buy eight ounce bags, puts two of them in. So um, I would go with 16 ounces in that tire. Let's go to California. Scott, welcome to the program. How are you doing, Kevin? Good. I got a question about. I got a question about. Uh, you guys always talk about buying older trucks pre EGR, and right. I have to deal with California. And I was kind of curious what your thoughts are as far as buying a truck that's dealing with all the uh, smog stuff for them. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty simple, and I know a lot of people don't like this answer, but I, I just wouldn't go to California. Well, <laughs> I got family and everything. That's why I was trying to figure out how to – because I know that, that yeah, this, well, uh, the EGRs and all that stuff, the trucks really don't run as long, and they're not as tough as – the older ones. But well, just, it's not even that. I'm trying to... If it didn't last, if it just didn't last as long, I could live with that. 
because I, I could figure that cost in, and if I knew what it was and could predict it, no big deal. What The reason right. I will not own or recommend one of these trucks is not because they don't last as long. It's because they are totally unpredictable. When they do break, nobody seems to know how to fix them. They create lots of downtime and lots of extra maintenance cost, and their fuel mileage, when things go wrong, fuel mileage drops off. So, you know, really, if, if, if the only reason you want to be able to run California is you have family, it would be far, far cheaper for you to stay with a pre-emission truck when you wanted to go see your family, find some place in Arizona or Nevada or Oregon or wherever is close to park the truck and rent a car and drive home to see people. Wow. That's interesting. Never thought about that. That's the All way right. I well, would I appreciate do your time. Yeah. You're welcome. I, I just, I will not own one of these trucks. They're just too unpredictable. See, at least in this model that I just talked about, we buy a pre-emission truck. We know what our costs are going to be. I, I've done that a thousand times. I can tell you what maintenance costs are going to be, how long it's going to last, all of those things. Fuel economy, totally unpredictable on these new trucks, and they can get really expensive when you figure downtime and cost and aggravation. It's so much easier to just find a place to park the truck, grab a rental car, and drive home. Uh, I, I've got a great example of a guy who lives in North Dakota, but all his best paying freight is on the East Coast. He parks his truck and flies home when he wants to go home. I, I think those are good business decisions. Let's uh, let's go to Washington. RJ, welcome to the program. Kevin. Hey, um, I was hey just calling reference to a previous call about regrooving how, how close you can regroove and um when I bought my regroover about six years ago and I've been regrooving wide singles now for about six years, I was told by them that the DOT wants at least two thirty seconds between the bottom of the groove and the steel belts of uncut rubber. Yeah, and that makes sense. I'm glad you called because I didn't know the measurement, but I knew that that is how we judge what i'm wondering is with a tire on a rim how do you measure that they they just told me they'll they'll just try and cut you know at the bottom of the groove i guess with uh i don't know with a punch or with a knife or with something and, and see when when the knife stops at the steel belts i guess that's maybe how they measure it i'm not sure that's that seems like a really bad policy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last thing I want somebody doing is poking something into my tire. Right. But I just thought I'd like yeah. you know, at least regrooving machine, you know, with that manufacturer, the regrouper yeah. told. No, I'm, I'm glad you called because I, I, I do know that that is the number that we're looking for. And when you're regrooving, you want to make sure you maintain that. Um, but I don't know how they would ever measure it, and I certainly don't like the way you just said, but, huh, interesting. All right, let's uh, let's see. I'm going to get to another call here. Let's go to Iowa. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. Can you hear me? I can. What can I help you with today? 
Um, I got a question in regards to equipment depreciation. One section 179, like you were talking about a little bit ago, and um, basically overall profit. And when is this the right time to consider uh, incorporating? I've grown from a single truck owner operator to a small fleet of 10 kind of buying equipment to what section 179 it minimized my tax burden for the last five years now i just feel like i'm kind of plateaued out i'm just i'm at a comfortable size everybody has fairly new equipment i just don't see it being feasible to continue to buy more equipment or it, a, it, it, it's a, not a need so, or a, so yeah so let, let's address that, because this is always a challenge, and I just see a lot of bad advice about this. There are accountants who will just keep telling you, trade it in, get another equipment, you need more depreciation. That is horrible advice, from, from my opinion. It, I think accountants and tax preparers do it because they want to be able to tell you you don't owe as much tax. The problem with that is, is it eats into your profit, which is far more important to me than tax. That's just the cost of doing business. I, I would rather be very, very profitable and have to give the government their share than keep spending money in order to try to reduce my tax burden. Now, if there is a reason to buy equipment, you want to expand, you, you need to replace something, you want a new truck, great, go, go buy it. But I don't yeah. ever do it for tax reasons. And eventually you run into the point where you are now. I mean, it, it just doesn't work forever that you have to keep spending money. And, and that's not really the point of being in business. So let me get to a break and I'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk about that and the limits for incorporation, which I have a feeling you're already there. But we'll talk about that. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. I'm going to go back to Iowa. I was talking with Ryan. Ryan, here's the, here's the best way I've found to kind of get people to understand this. I think a lot of people are under the impression that if we spend a dollar on, on a business item, that means we pay a dollar less in tax. That's absolutely not true. And I think that's what, that is what leads people to make poor decisions about what they buy. 
people will say, well, I bought the Chrome, but it's tax deductible. Or I bought this new truck, but I get to write off all the depreciation. You do, but it's never a dollar-for-dollar savings. So here's one way to look at it. If you have a dollar worth of profit in, in your hand, you have, or let's make it sound better, if you have $1,000 worth of profit and you're trying to decide what to do with it, you can either keep the $1,000 and you basically have to send the government about 300 of it, or, and you still have 700 left. So the government got 300, you have 700 cash in your hand, you can now go do anything you want with that money. It's yours and you've paid all the tax on it. Or if you have that $1,000 in profit, you could say, well, you know, I don't really need it, but Chrome would be nice and, or a new stereo or whatever it is, and I'd rather give it to some other business than give it to the government. Well, you spend the $1,000 and you don't have to send the government their 300 but you also have nothing left. The money's gone. So we don't want to spend money on things we don't really need or want just to get a tax break. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely understand the whole concept. It, it just gets pretty hard to swallow when these tax bills got so many zeros on oh. it. <laughs> no, I, I get it. And I, I clearly think that it's time for you to incorporate because we could probably shave thousands of dollars off the, your tax bill by incorporating. I, I have to believe you're, you're paying tax on more than sixty-five or 70000 a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's what I figured. Yeah, you're, you're, you are probably way beyond the point. So I, I would get the incorporation done um, as soon as possible. Oh, well, I did ask my CPA about this even last year, and he just, he's kind of against it, and he makes it sound like once you put your assets into this corporation, to get them back out, or if the corporation was to dissolve, there's so many, there's a lot of penalties or or some type of uh, repercussions to pay at the end. But, yeah, but there, really there really isn't. There really isn't. And honestly, I, I just don't ever see that being an issue anyway. I mean, we're not forming the corporation thinking that it's going to fail next year. Why would it? You know, we're and and if you decide to get out of business, well, you just sell the trucks. The corporation end up recapturing the depreciation. No big deal. But that's part of the reason why I don't keep going down that road of always buying new equipment. The more often we do that, the bigger that recapture is going to be at the end. But there is so much money to save by putting you into an S-Corp. I mean, give me a rough idea. How much money did you pay tax on last year? What, was, what did I write the check for to the IRS, or what was my profit? Uh, what was the profit? About a little over 400 Oh, oh, oh your account profit. Correct. Your accountant needs to be shot. I seriously, I cannot yeah, I, believe. I, here's 
here's the thing. So when we hit, and I don't remember the exact number right now, but it's somewhere around 115000 of profit. All the way up to that point, you are paying Social Security on every penny of profit, all the way up to about 115000 or so, which is a lot of money. Then all the way up to forever, even if you were to profit $4 million, you always pay Medicare tax on every single penny of profit. It never stops, no matter how much you make. We can eliminate both of those by paying you a reasonable salary and taking the rest of the money out as, as a, a dividend or a draw, which means you'll pay income tax on it, but you won't pay Social Security or Medicare on any of it. Which is like 15%, right? Yeah, it it would be 15% all the way up to that cutoff for Social Security, and then it would be like three-something after that. Um, I forget the exact numbers, but on that kind of profit, it's a lot of money we're talking about. So let's say that there is this penalty at the end, um, which I don't think is going to be much. You are probably going to save... $15,000 $15,000 a year in tax. So it doesn't well, that, yeah, take long for that to, to add up. Yeah, maybe you'd save that for all these years and you'd be in a good position to just be able to pay that penalty. Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so I that, would absolutely... That, that was, that was, I, you know, here's what I would recommend. You've got to find another accountant and get a second opinion. You know, take some notes about why this guy is so hesitant. I, 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 maybe I'm missing something. Taxes can be complicated, but I don't think I am. I, I would get this, get some things in writing, and I would go get a second opinion on this. Let's, uh, let's go to Maryland. Steve, welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon. How are you doing? Excellent. Hey, what can I help you with today? Uh, I had a question about the OPS system. Uh, I was always under the impression that it's the additive packages that were out in the oil, not the oil. I mean, how do you, how would you replenish those, or do you? Um, you do, and there's a couple ways. Most of the additives stay in the oil just fine, and we can see that when we do oil analysis. I can tell you in 20 years of, of watching oil samples that, of the additives that are in the oil, I never see a problem with. The only additive that really gets depleted is the base. And the good news is the base is really easy to replenish. Um, Just to give you an idea of how simple base is, you could crush up some Rolades and put it in there and that would work. Base is just an alkaline substance that that helps counteract the acid. So when we get acid buildup, that depletes the base. Um, But Lubrifiner now makes filters, spin-on oil filters that replace your full-flow OEM filter, and when you spin it on, it has base in it. So that's one easy way. Most engines burn a little bit of oil, and every time we add a gallon of oil, we're replenishing all the additives and the base. So I've seen engines go five, 600,000 miles without an oil change, and the additives are never a problem. 
Okay, great. I had a question uh, in defense uh, for all these plastic owners out here. Uh, I know you're not too crazy about it, but I bought one about two years ago, a glider kit, and I love it. It's 389. Uh, I got my big 8 inch stacks and 18 inch Texas bumper. And I'm getting almost seven and a half miles to a gallon, and I'm I'm leased to a company that has a bunch of 386 day cats with wide signals with the MX-13 motor, and they're getting six, six and a half, so I'm just loving it. Well, yeah, but hold on, because we, we have to be careful of comparisons like this. Now, let me start off by saying, if you love your truck, that's what you should absolutely drive, no question. But when people call me and they're asking for my advice and they don't own one and they don't really understand the difference then I need to explain it to them. You, you can't compare your truck to theirs. I mean, comparing any two trucks is almost impossible because there's so many variables. But you just gave me a whole boatload full of variables. One, they've got an emission engine. That's a huge issue. Here's, here's what we do know, though. This is absolutely easy to prove and replicate because it's been tested over and over and over. The, the best comparison for us of your truck against an aerodynamic truck would be if we took the body off of yours and we were to drop on, instead of a 389, that 386. Nothing else would change. Driver would be right. the same. Freight would be the same. Engine, transmission, tire. We, we eliminate all the variables except aerodynamics. Your truck would go from getting seven and a half miles to the gallon to getting eight and a half miles to the gallon. One full mile per gallon difference between a full aerodynamic and a classic. And that's the only way you could ever test that is by controlling all the other variables. Again, seven and a half is very respectable. You like the truck. That's what you should be driving. It's not the answer I'll give to people when they call for advice, though. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Robsburg. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We're down to the final segment. I'm off to Georgia. Bill, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. How you doing? Good. I got a couple got a couple comments here. Uh, one about the rear goof tire. The other one is the guy that on the Power Hour, uh, the other show, um, with the light problems. Lights coming on, going out, this and that. I got a friend that's got a 389 Pete that's two years old. And his was doing the same thing. His washers were squirting when he was sitting still and, you know, out of the truck and the whole nine yards. And he was going to replace his module. But before he did, they they 
traced the chassis ground down to that module, and it was loose. It trucked, and uh, he fixed the chassis ground, and he hadn't had problems since with the lights. So before I spent you know that two to five hundred dollars on a module, I'd check the grounds. That's always a good idea, so I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I, I, I had a pretty standard. If I had an electrical issue, before I ever tried to address the issue, I would go to the batteries, clean up all the batteries, follow the connections, clean everything up I could find, redo all the grounds before you even start. And it's surprising how many times doing that makes the problem go away. Yeah. And then uh, getting to the regrooved tire real quick, I think what they were addressing was the fact that, as you know, it is too hard to gauge how deep you go. And if you expose a belt, uh, DOT treats that like it's a flat tire. And they will make you pull it off and write you up. Yeah. Oh, and they should. I totally uh, get that. I mean, if, if, if we're so... Yeah. At, at doing this and we expose a belt, I wouldn't drive with that tire. So I get it if, if, if you yeah. do damage to the tire. But the way they made it sound, they should have been more clear on that. The wording makes it sound yeah. like regrooving the tire would be a cause for a violation. And right. it's not. If you right. regroove yeah. it properly, yeah. you're just fine. Right, yeah, because I, I used to do mine, you know, and uh, no, pro- yeah. never had any problem. But you know, but it's so easy to get into them belts, and that's probably you know what they were getting at. Like the other guy said, you know, there's there's no way of checking how deep that rubber is unless you want to, you know, well, exactly get a I mean, you know that, pretend you're. That was kind of yeah. Well, and that was kind of my point was in a safety inspection. If I haven't gone so deep to hit the belt, there's no way to measure what's left. You know, if I'm if I'm regrooving, and you know this, you know how to set it so you don't go too deep. And as long as I don't go too deep, there shouldn't be a problem. And if I've gone so deep that I hit the belt, well, then I'm not going to use that tire. So I get it. If, if I go so deep, the belt is visible. Yeah, I get that's a violation. Regrooving the tire itself um, should not be, though. Let's go to California. Chuck, welcome to the program. Yes, sir. I just changed companies and uh, got into a different truck. I went Reefered, a flatbed. I got instead of a Cascadia now, I've got a 2015 DD15 uh, Coronado, and it's a nine speed. And I'm trying to figure out, it seems like my fuel economy's dropped about a half a mile per gallon. So a mile per gallon, and my loads are lighter. I'm just curious what, what gearing is in this truck? Is that why my fuel economy's changed? No. When you say change, change from what? From what this truck used to get? No, sir. From, I'm used to a 2014 Cascadia, and now okay. I'm in a 15 so, Coronado. Yeah, so, no, well, hold on, because this goes back to that last call that I was trying to compare his truck to the trucks the fleets were running. There are yes, sir. 50 to 75 variables when it comes to fuel economy. 
it is outrageously complicated. When even though I've been doing fuel economy testing for about 25 years, I can't always tell you why one truck did better or worse than another. I can usually come pretty close, but there's no way I could pick one reason why this truck is getting a half mile per gallon less. I could tell you one obvious one. The Coronado isn't nearly as aerodynamic as the Cascadia was. So there's a big one. Yeah, what behind that last fall, well, I kind of figured that. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, but even that, I would never say that's the reason. Because here's what could happen. We could sit down and we could list out all the specs about all those two trucks. And we could say, oh, well, the Coronado might do a little bit better because it has this horsepower and torque setting. The Coronado could do worse because of the aerodynamics. The Cascadia might do better because it has lower rolling resistant tires. I mean, I could keep going on and on and on. Some of the differences will make fuel economy go up on one truck. Some of the other differences will make it go down. And again, that we just can't ever put our finger on exactly why. Now I could look at either truck and say, if we did this, fuel economy would get better. If we do this, it would get worse. But making that comparison between two different trucks is uh, its virtually impossible. Yes, sir. Do you think you might be able to tell me what my gearing is in this truck? Because I can't find it anywhere, and they didn't tell me if I give you my tachometer and how fast I'm going. I should be able to come pretty close, so give me some numbers. Uh, when I'm doing, I'm doing 60 miles an hour right now, I tax reading right at 13 or just under 13. Uh, sounds like 355s, which would be a very common gear for that setup. What, what tire size? Uh, if I, uh, the, the low code 225s, what is that, 285, yeah, 275s? Like that. Yep, three three fifty fives. Then will be the gear. Okay, if I'm going to continue to pull flatbed and I want to spec my own truck, I, uh, I was told you know go with the mid roof. Uh, what kind of gearings would be good for that? Well. The combination that I like to spec is very different from what everybody else specs. I like to go with what we call a direct drive gear setup and an overdrive transmission. So it's a little bit of a hybrid. So we would go with something like a 264 or a 279 rear end and a 13 speed that we would run most of the time in 11th because that is our direct gear. So from 55 to 60 miles an hour in direct 11th, 60 to 65 in 12th, which is our first overdrive. And when the cops are chasing you and you don't want to stop, we could go into 13th and probably run about 85. Um, but that's the way I would like to spec it. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Dan, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for all you do for us out here. I'm still learning from you every day. So Good. What can my I help you with today? today? My question today is about engine oil. I had a friendly debate with a friend 
he's running a very expensive high-end oil, and I'm telling him he's wasting his money. I was wondering if you could go over your what you've learned on engine oils and what your opinions are. Mostly, yeah. I'm talking manufacturer of engine oil. Yeah, so. I've done a lot of work, a lot of testing. I've read a lot of oil samples, and I cannot come up with a way to prove that one engine oil is any better than another. If I could have, and I've tried, I've used some of the most expensive exotic oils on the market. Um, I've used some of the cheapest oils on the market. And honestly, I can't figure out a way to tell a difference. I can tell a difference between uh, conventional oil and synthetic oil when it comes to fuel economy. So I've always recommended synthetic, and synthetic is a better oil anyway. We know that. But I I can't figure out a way to prove one manufacturer is better than another. Um, Rotella Synthetic does an amazing job. Um, It's easy to find. It's inexpensive. If I were ever going to promote an oil, it might just be Rotella. It, it works well, it's easy to get, and it's inexpensive. And I, I can't prove that oils that cost twice as much do any better. I mean, if somebody could show me a way to prove it, I, I might listen, but I haven't seen any. You know, they could say, well, here's an engine, and we tore it down after a million miles, and it still looked good. Well, I can do that with Rotella, too. So... I just don't have a specific oil that I recommend. Use an API classification that meets the requirements of your engine, and if the engine isn't all worn out, use synthetic. Other than that, pick one that you like. I'm all out of time. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rothbard. Thanks for tuning in to The Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.